every morning people from 52 countries are logging in you know logging on to our product and we only sold in 30 so so 22 countries on top of it are cross pollination because brands expanded to other countries we got right kind of brands who are multinational i think our north star is to simplify complex restaurant situations so so by the thesis anybody who is running a very simple restaurant business is not a customer so if you are dealing with a very very complex problem company grow the number of stores when you go to different cities when you cross countries and continents your complexities shoot through the roof and that's exactly where we deliver the most value So at a very high level, how big is your team? Uh, how many customers you're doing? What is the country footprint? And if you're open to speak about your ARRs? Yeah, so I think uh, we are a tight operation. We are a 140 people team. You know, for the size of business that we do, we work with 10,000 plus restaurants as of today. This is a, a little more than 1,500 brands. Uh, you know, top 30 brands contribute uh, almost 40% of the business, which is large enterprise. We work with Nando's, Carl's Jr., Hagen Dazs, and many more brands. Uh, we also, you know, work with a couple of Michelin stars and three Michelin stars. Um, you know, please bear with my bragging, but but we really, <laughs> really, uh, we really earned it, and and very, very proud of, of it. We happy that we got the chance to work with them. So them. So uh, so that's our. Uh, so for us, uh, this 52 country footprint, uh, you know, for the product is more like a proof of concept. It's a vanity number, but it, you know. to me the value of this number is that uh, they're all right we are relevant and we are we are possible uh, our possibility is for a global footprint right we our product works in these countries and and in our case product is not you know it cannot be only internet right because um, you know we we work at the intersection of uh, invoicing billing collection of payments uh, so a lot of local taxation a lot of uh, local language local currency conversion so many things come into the play that that you know each country brings in some sort of complexity to us for us to solve so so for us 52 countries mean that apart from like just feeling good about it so generally any thoughts on how big you want to get like uh, you know you didn't mention about the north star but uh, what is big for you what's that big vision i think uh, there has never been the right answer for it because every year we look back and feel very stupid about uh, what we thought last year and i hope that that continues but but uh, i think uh, if you had asked me this 7 8 years back i would have said Oh, I want to do hundred thousand restaurants. You know, that looked like a big number. Uh, we're still not there. But I think on the way, we realized that it's not really about the number of restaurants because it's also you know as the industry it's volatile. Restaurants keep opening, shutting down. There's a there's a lot of churn in the in the restaurant space. That's not your churn. That's not a product churn. That's a churn of the restaurant itself. I think along the way, it it changed to impact. It changed to what is it that we are delivering? What is it that we are changing the life of the restaurant owner? And you know the way I, we look at us ourselves today is that we are. bottom line efficiency company for example doordash postmates uber eats of the world are a top line centric you know play they help restaurants grow their business grow their top line. Uh, we have nothing to do with the top line we don't impact top line uh, we don't even want to but we are also not a utility play right for example a point of sale company a billing solution company can be looked at like a very utility thing eh? one burger one coke print bill uh, no we are not that we are beyond that uh we are bringing in operational efficiency uh we're bringing in efficiency at a theft level at a pilferage level at a at a cost control level at a people control level at at uh, at configuration control level how do you make sure that you're like a simple problem right how do you make sure that 
across multiple cities, across multiple outlets, your menu and your pricing and your offers at any given point in time are absolutely synchronized with all the aggregators across the world. Right. Now it's a very simple problem to think about, but it's extremely complex when you, you know, cross cities and country. This is this is a big hole, right? How do you make sure that you're out of stock does not happen, right? You lose mm-hmm. so much sales just because something is out of stock because you couldn't. So from a bottom line efficiency perspective, we realize that we can only impact companies that uh, you know we can only impact brands that have that problem, right? If you're a single store restaurant, everything is in like line of sight for you. Right? As a restaurant owner, you know how much do you have, how much do you sell. We are not going to make a very very large impact on you, and hence probably we won't be relevant. So today, what's big for us? I think our north star is to chase top 400 brands in the world who are truly multinational and and that's it so we we don't look at our life as an indian company or an american company or a or a company working in middle east or europe or africa uh, we look at ourselves as truly global where if there is a brand which has a multinational or a multi city or even in their own country or city a large use case uh, we should be able to alleviate their problems and bring in that bottom line efficiency can i add 5% uh, mm-hmm. 2% to your bottom line Mm-hmm. And if you're a $300 million revenue, that's good enough money for me to also take a bite, you know, from what I save for you. So yes. I think I think yes. that will be big. So number of restaurants for us now is going to be a function of those 400. Whatever that 400 brands brings in, I think. I think that's Very cool. So let's go back in the past a bit and, you know, talk about, you know, 10 years back when you started and you were fundraising. I remember you sharing the story with me, you fundraising in Singapore and uh, investors trying to give you a lot of money and you're like, what is this happening? So tell us that story a bit more and how was that your thinking probably back then and changed now? No, I think, I think I'll, I'll, I'll you know, change that question a little bit. We were, we were not trying to raise money. I think that's that's where uh, probably we were a little bit lucky uh, because we still had the upper hand to say no and we were also a little stupid that way. So I think uh, this was 2014. We were two years into the journey and uh, a large top tier VC uh, partner met me at, at a startup event. And for some reason that guy thought that we are cool and, and he fell in love with us. Um, uh, fact is that I was just oblivious to the fact that he's a VC partner of a top tier fund. So, so when he asked me something, you know, I, I didn't give him much reply. So probably that got to him. Uh, but, but point is that, that we got a term sheet and that term sheet was for a million. Uh, and then this guy revised the term sheet in three weeks to 3 million. And then he revised the term sheet further up in next two weeks to 7 million. And, and we were like, what the, like, what the fuck is happening? Like, what does he see in us? that we are not able to see in ourselves. And we barely knew how to spend that one, right? We were still learning and understanding that what would we do with it. And suddenly, you know, it was 7x. And then, you know, how how fundraising and VC world works, um, you know, every other VC in the town started calling us and uh, everybody wanted to meet us today. And, uh, you know, one one VC partner, I remember from another fund, um, you know, I told them that I can't, I can't you know, I cannot fly to your city. And the guy said, don't worry, I'll, I'll fly to your city tomorrow morning. Said, okay. And I met them. I think uh, at that time, two things were still clear to us. One, that we are still in the process of figuring out what is going to be our final impact in the world, right? In the sense that that product market fit was there in the sense that we were selling. Restaurant owners were appreciating the product, but we knew that we are still early. We were selling cloud-based point of sale system back in, you know, 13, 14. And people will still need a lot of convincing on why do they even need this, right? So, so we're still early from that perspective. Second is that we had not seen any, you know, other region outside of India with a 
respect to this use case. So we were also very sure that when we cross our country, we will have to, you know, ramp up, we'll have to learn and understand and then probably find a fit again in that market, which will be very different or maybe slightly different for what we do. And the reason we said no to this money, in fact, we got horrified. We, uh, those were the two most stressful months, you know, for me and Sakshi. Sakshi is my co-founder. We are also husband and wife. And I think uh, there was a point in those two months where everybody was around us was celebrating the fact that, okay, 7 million is going to fly in. Uh, we were like, all right, we we can clearly see that this is going to be a disaster because all these VCs were actually telling us the grand plan on how to spend this. And and I think I think last nail in the coffin was uh, this guy said that we are going to open seven offices uh, in seven different countries in next six months. We were the only P P in our company. We were the VP. We were the VIP. We were we, like there was no other P in this company, right? And suddenly on the Excel sheet, I had twenty VPs of X, Y, Z. You know, I mean, there's a grand plan to spend seven million in eighteen months. You have to understand that, right? Right. So, so you know, then I asked a very naive and an innocent question to this guy, and I said, "Sir, uh, I appreciate this plan. Where are we making the revenue?" So, because there was no, there, no, I'm not kidding. There was no revenue column. There was not even a column. It, it was not even saying zero. There's no column. So I, so this guy looked at me, smiled, and he said, "No worry, we'll figure that out." I said, "Sorry, we will figure that out, and we have, we already know that we are going to do this." So we finally, you know, that was the last nail for us. And we said, you know what, we may be stupid, but but this is not how we believe we would want to run our life. Also, between me and Sakshi, we both are, you know, we both always felt that we are fairly smart to run two different companies. Uh, if we are running one, uh, that's a choice uh, we have made, right? So for a VC, it might be a portfolio. For us, this was supposed to be life. And uh, we finally told them, Ki, all right, uh, you know, glad we met you and uh, we are not interested in this. And then VC said, you're thinking too small. And we have to tell them you're right. And let us grow bigger and let us grow in our mindset. Once we get there, once we can think at your level, we will come back to you. You know, that so, evening, that evening we actually popped champagne because we were so stressed for two months that we almost felt that everything was going away, which was a very, very, you know, unsettling feeling. And we had to pop a champagne that evening because we were like, all right, this is really it. And everybody was like, who does that? Like you said no to, you know, 7 million and then you spent on champagne. This this doesn't make sense. But I think for us, it was so, logical. So with your girlfriend turned wife, turned co-founder, you built such a big company and you both were entrepreneurs before uh, before building Possist. And this is no outside money. There's no outside money. This is no, I mean, we raised a little bit of angel capital, but uh, that was largely uh, during the same time when we said no to this VC. There were some very, very good people in the ecosystem who were continuously asking us that, hey, we would love to partner with you on this and we would love to, you know, put our money. So we built a round to get some angel money, but that was that was less than 250K. So, right, so yeah. right. This is so impressive, Ashish. So impressive. If you were to do this again and say build a company again, you will do the same way, everything done the same way or would you just go out and raise capital because hey now you can <laughs> so easily and now you just know the game uh, no i think very cool question i i see i'll tell you why i don't despise uh uh you know outside capital uh, uh i i used to by the way you know i think i think back in 2014 15 if you had asked me 
I was probably a little bitter about yeah. all this thing. I used to think that these guys are stupid and they don't know that. I don't think like that today. You know, also my view of uh, VC or private equity or any external capital is a little different. So, so first, let me answer that. If I had to do this all over again, will I take outside capital or will I uh, do it on my own? I don't think I have a right answer for that. I think I still look at time and capital as two resources. I believe that they have color. So every resource in this world has color. And... Uh, uh, you match it to your need. So, so if tomorrow I'm doing a company which requires me to have money of a certain color, I will take it happily. Um, if I believe that, okay, I have the money of that color available with me, I will do it my way, which is okay. I also believe that uh, mine and investors' interests need to be correct. So, so the so I'm I think I've grown and matured a little to understand this that that either it's a, you know whether it's a VC or an angel or a private equity, whatever name you want to give it to them. There is a fund manager on the other side who are managing professional money. That money they have taken from somebody at a certain promise. And they are going to put that money in companies who can actually live up to that promise. As bootstrappers, we can you know just call them dumb or call them whatever, sharks. But the fact is that that there is, if you don't understand what that money, what kind of promise that money comes for, comes with, then you are the one who's stupid. Right? You should not be taking. But in case that promise and the kind of game you're playing, it all aligns, super. I think that money will do wonders to you because you and the fund manager are, are in absolute alignment. And that is exactly why you see that certain VCs and certain times it baffles the world that, that you know and everybody on the street knows that this startup is going down, but VCs are continuously putting money and backing them again and again. You're like, what the, what the hell is going on? What, what am I missing? What you're missing is that this fund manager and this entrepreneur and the game they are playing, everything is a bank. Mm -hmm. And it's a gamble, right? And it's a casino table in which there is a man with a pile of cash, he's losing, and every bet he's doubling, 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 right? It's exactly that, right? Because they understand the gamble and they're in full alignment. So I think I will take the aligned money, whether it's mine, whether it's somebody else, it's money. Very fair, very fair. So 16 years of uh, entrepreneurship, Ashish, 16 years of overall journey. And I read somewhere that, uh, you know, you planned for like 12 months of no revenue during COVID and you actually had two months of zero revenue, literally. And how was that? Was it the hardest time ever in entrepreneurship? How, how was it? Yes and no. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one, like a, uh, like a story in that. Okay, so COVID hit and, uh, you know, we have always been cash flow driven, uh, profitable. Uh, that's how we, you know, learned life. That's how we see life. Um, so for the first time in life, certainly in April of 20, there was zero revenue. And we had like a one and a half million dollars worth of outstanding to be credited in the next 15 days. Uh, my team on 15th of April, they were supposed to be partying in Prague as the end year party, mm. right? So, so uh, and then all, all became zero. You know, I was just talking to a, a friend of mine who's the funded company, has always been VC funded. And this guy was also losing it. And he said, you know, dude, I am like, I'm so stressed. I'm not able to understand what the fuck is going on. Like, how long do you think this will be? Because I only have runway for eight months and I'm going to fire XYZ and I'm going to reduce my bills, etc. I need to get to a runway of 16. I was just shocked. I was just, I was just looking at him in shock. I said, so you're stressed because of this, because you have 16 months of runway. I said, yes. I said, how much runway do you have? I said, you know what? Like a week before, till a week before, I didn't even know that I needed a runway. You have to understand that. We, we don't run on runways. We don't have runways. Right? We, we, I mean, and this may not sound the smartest way to run business. I will not 
prescribed you know to anyone i think this is this is like adrenaline right to each his own yeah uh, but uh, but what i mean the way we understood life is the confidence and the and the engine that we have built which spins enough money every quarter to march ahead and keep investing back into the business and keep growing and you know keep snowballing when you are running your life like that you don't see beyond three, like 3 months you don't see beyond a quarter and you are absolutely comfortable in that so for us uh, when we suddenly realize that okay we have probably two months of you know uh, i mean we, we we will not have uh, money more than to sustain more than two or three months and last two months have been zero uh, it was unsettling but it was not unsettling as much as i saw my vc funded friends were unsettled because these guys used to think in life think about life and runways you know i can't speak about other bootstrappers but at least at least you know for us life was not you know being thought in runways so so for me it was not even runway optimizer for me it was like all right we have we have this situation in which revenue is not coming in and probably this revenue will start coming in at 10% 20% 30% 40% and we don't know exactly how long will it take um so let us prepare for 12 months and mm-hmm. and this 12 months was also not a very thought well thought idea mm-hmm. it's more like that how far worst can i think right now and i didn't right. want to be hard on myself you know because i knew that i cannot prepare for 20 months mm-hmm. so there is no point talking about it right yeah. so i thought okay i can probably prepare for nine and i will add a little bit of optimism and say whatever revenue will start coming in probably this will push me to you know another three and this is the 12 month plan and we cut down you know salaries we created a plan to cut down salaries in the sense that you know we created some part which was a cut some part which was a deferred pay which we will pay back you know once we recover we made sure that you know people don't lose out on a lot of money and then you know we started cutting out whatever expenses we thought you know should be cut out and to our surprise and happiness a lot of mixed feelings because when we started looking at okay do we need to let go you know of some people we couldn't find fact like we were such a lean company already that you know when, when you want to lose weight you don't cut your limbs so if if you don't have fat what will you do so we like okay what do we do now so i think we in total we let go of uh, 9 or 10 people those were freshers who were recruited in last 6 months okay so these were the people who just couldn't make any like like they were yet to, they, they were yet to start delivering the right they were already uh, you know not doing anything which was moving the wheel but i think rest of the people and out of them i think we hired six back within 6 mm-hmm. months. So so we also told them that okay we are doing this we are in full communication with you we also understand what's happening but if we get a chance we'll hire you back if you don't want to come back to us that is also fair and we are going to help you get. So so those were those I will not really say that was the most stressful to be honest. Um Oh so you have had more stressful moments than that. 100%. I think <laughs> I have had I have had nights where I thought that there will be no morning after. I think uh, I think it was stressful in the sense that that for the first time me and Sakshi felt really helpless. You know for that I think for those 3 weeks we felt extremely helpless. uh not because we won't be able to pay but just because you know covid was a situation in which your hustle and your power and your intellect everything was rendered useless so so i think i think we felt helpless from that perspective that we didn't even know what to do to get out and we knew that anything that we will do is not going to change this at least mm-hmm. in the short term right. i think those were the those were the feeling that was the feeling of helplessness for i think the month of april but and who were the biggest that, supporters who were your biggest supporters during that time and if you can name names i think it was it was not really 
you know, people as specific people, right? We were not even seeking help. It was, it was, I think it was everyone. I think we were too overwhelmed by the amount of support, uh, a lot of silent support, a lot of vocal support, a lot of support, support, you know, which we received from all directions. For example, our team was more than, you know, eager to take pay cuts. We have had people who probably were, let's say in the, in the bottom quartile of the salary value who actually came back and said, Hey, you've only given us 10%, but I can part way part with 50% of the salary as well. So don't worry. Uh, we have had those emails. We have had uh, customers where uh, they actually started paying us advance as soon as they started recovering. That yeah, yes. we, we have had we have had situation where we were like we were spellbound because I think we uh, mid of March and entire April it was zero revenue till May 15. So that was two months. We were prepared that till July we are not going to see any money. But the first money started ringing back into the accounts by 27th of May, and this came uh, you know as an advance from a customer because we wrote to all our customers saying that we know that COVID has hit everyone. We are not going to give you COVID discount. We are not going to give you any discount, but we are giving you a moratorium. You can pay whenever you want entire tech suite that we have is available for you whatever tech product that you require to change resurrect your business is available it is still going to be built but you can pay you know in the long run so don't worry about that people started paying voluntarily and i think in may i remember we got 15 percent of our you know of generally monthly revenue and that 15 percent was big right because we we felt wow so I think a lot of people supported this way. I don't have specific names, but but I think we received too much love and too much support from everywhere without even, you know, kind of asking per se. So right. my philosophical version of this is, and this is something which I shared with our team as well. I said that, see, when there is, when the game is going fast and game is going good for you, you can commit a lot of sins and they get washed because you're going up and you're going with speed. But when shit starts, you know, going down, that is exactly when all your good as well as bad starts getting compounded. Yeah. So this is the time if we have done anything wrong with a customer, employee, vendor, partner, shit is going to hit the roof because mm -hmm. these people are not going to take any more shit right now from us because they themselves have to deal with them. Mm -hmm. So I think when I look back, I think all the good things that we might have done overall, they all compounded. And yeah. That's fair. That's like real the karma uh, doing its work. 100%, right? 100%, yeah. 100%. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've had many hard moments, many sleepless nights. So now if uh, given a chance to change one thing about your company, what would you do differently? I think, uh, I mean, this is, this is a bias of knowledge now, right? I, I, of course I know better uh, than before. Yeah. So, so if I have to restart number one, I will have extreme uh, bias to measurement. I, if I if I had to restart a company, um, I will not make the product first. I will first make the dashboards. Uh, dashboards that I should be measuring. Uh, I will obsess over all the metrics everywhere in the company. So the high intuition Ashish now is like a high evidence-based Ashish. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was born intelligent. Education ruined me. So uh, uh that's that's true right <laughs> i can't i can't help it uh, but one one hard learning that i've had over years is that that you don't need insights insights are overrated you need visibility so so people obsess over insight but fact is that if you only create visibility nobody's dumb enough to not see the obvious right just create visibility that's all most of the time the opacity is 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 the killer right the it, it was not about the whether you could change something or not mm -hmm. it's more about that you didn't even know what to change you don't even you didn't even yeah, know that that's not happening. transparent enough 
Hmm. Yeah. So, so if I have to restart, I'll I'll create that. Number one. Number two. I think uh, uh, I'm automatically more biased now. Functions like legal, HR, uh, marketing, finance. Uh, I think these are the four functions, according to me, are the most strategic functions. They run the world. Best companies in the world have these four fixed, absolutely perfect. And I'm not uh, underrating product or sales, but what I'm saying is that product and sales for any company is like, you know, it's, it's like breathing and eating and drinking. You anyway will do that. It's involuntary. You have to build a good product. You have to sell. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that I, I believe that rock solid foundation and the tenets of those that foundation on which you can build a solid business comes from uh, you know finance legal hr and marketing uh, on top of it if these things are you know well taken care of and all the second time third time entrepreneurs you'll see that they they're actually very very smart with these things because because this is the foundation to scale i think if i had to if i will do something differently this time if i had to restart is that um, you know i automatically will think about scale uh, or distribution or scaling the company and scaling the processes and how those people will scale. So I think this is a, I don't know, this, this is probably the curse of knowledge, right? But, yeah. but, uh, uh, but, but this is how it is. You, you, you know, today, I think we, one, one big insight that has happened to me over the last few years is that after you achieve the true product market fit and you get the quorum, you know, in the room with respect to all the, all kind of designations and all kind of roles in your company it becomes an engine and once and for me definition of engine is that right from one end to the other end right from generating a lead to you know getting a renewal from the customer if i am completely outside of this engine and this works that's an engine so and that's an engine that we have and after looking at this engine and stepping out so for example three years back i you know stepped out from any operational room. i don't have an operational role at consist uh, uh, at all on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, my job is to, you know, think or at least pretend to think. Of course, it is pretense. Absolutely bloody it is pretense. It's, see, the point is that every quarter or two quarter or three quarter, whenever, uh, you know, it hits, we're like, all right, this is me. But but <laughs> fact is, fact is still the time it doesn't hit, it's all, it's all bullshit. But, but point is that uh, when I started looking at it like an engine, I think one insight that happened to me is that, you know, you start looking at the business very differently. You suddenly start looking at growth of your business very differently. Um, you know, your overwhelming moments are not the events in between, right? Those fine-tuning of the engine is required and it's easier said than done, right? How do you fine-tune your support? How do you fine-tune your product evolution? How do you fine-tune your, you know, communication, marketing, this and that? But that fine-tuning doesn't become your life. Right? That's not that's not a problem, right? Your problem is how to get the engine bigger. How do how do you churn more? How do you make sure that this auto scales or scales uh, without breaking? I think that's a different problem altogether. And I, I, I don't I don't know it. I'm learning that. Right. I'm in that process. But you can't unsee and uh, unsee and unexperience that. Like 100%. that's done. Now, I, now if I'm onto another thing. I will start from that. I have yeah. like I've lost I've lost innocence. Well, okay, but now as an investor, you're investing in other people's company and you're applying your own learnings and helping other founders, right? Which is incredible. And that gives us a good segue. So speaking of investments, five years, 
40 checks and I know your dad is like a Warren Buffet style investor. Are you giving him competition? Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, <laughs> I'm very, I'm very happy last year during COVID, uh, you know, for the first time he actually told me, you know, what you do, I think we, we just cannot. I was like, oh man, this is, this is so, <laughs> so bloody cool. Uh, no, I think he, he's a stock market champ and I'm, you know, I, I long back, I realized that I'm, I don't have a stock market temperament. I'm I'm too long term temperament, uh, you know, for for stock. You like market. to believe in things, yeah. Mm-hmm. Believe in things, and you know, kind of. I mean, he he is also a long term investor, of course. Uh, you know, but uh, but my long term and his long term are like you know different, right? And 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 that's that's where that's where I believe that I'm very very fit for startup investing. A lot of patience. Uh, I have a big appetite for risk, but at the same time, you know, my risk calculation is not gambling. My risk is more value driven. Uh, you know, I know that an entrepreneur is feeling the pain right, doing the things right. Uh, they may or may not make it. That's okay. But uh, but on the way, they will they will have multiple opportunities to make. And I am betting on those you know inflection points. I'm not worried about you know if, if they're doing it right or wrong. I know they'll figure it out. Everybody figures it out. So talk that's to us all. more about your investing style. How do you discover opportunities, and what makes you tick? Like what makes you? Yeah, this is it. Okay, so so I think uh, this is very very personal. I don't think uh, I, I don't think I'm fit for let's say you know investing other people's money because of the reasons which I'm mm. going to talk. Uh, so for me, investing started because I wanted to learn uh, because I had extreme FOMO because uh, because I thought oh shit you know Vartika is doing something cool that guy is doing something cool uh, and I'm doing process and and you know what do I do now? So I thought all right if I you know if I cannot fly two planes at the same time, at least I can get a seat on the other one. So for me, that started as that. And for that, the minimum expectation that I had was, or I still carry is, that when I hear your idea, when I hear your business, when I see your product or your service or whatever you're doing, a part of me should feel like, hey, if I was not doing pauses, I could have joined you. If I get that feeling, that's first big check for me. Second is that I believe in people who bootstrap. And for that, I don't mean external capital is bad. I only mean that I know for sure that in your journey, there are multiple times when you will have right reasons to give up, like reasons right enough that nobody will even, you know, people will sympathize with with you if you give up instead of, you know, instead of looking down upon you, right? Those kind of moments where everybody will say, all right, dude, you did enough, don't worry, right? And... I think at, at that time, if you knew how to deal with problems uh, without money, that's a superpower. Right? You, you know, be, nowadays people are calling it cockroach entrepreneurs or whatever. Right? So, <laughs> uh, so uh, my point is that that you have to be a bootstrapper at heart. You should know that money is required to experiment, to do inorganic stuff, to lose. Money's job is to you know be lost to give you some learning. That's that's exactly how money should be. Third. I believe that you should be in for a long term. Uh, you know, I uh, I am not a plan B sort of guy. And again, I, I don't really think it's a good or bad. I think it's to each his own. I'm not a plan B guy. I don't have a plan. Uh, and I like it that way. Uh, so, you know, most of the entrepreneurs and I see, I hear myself saying this about entrepreneurs I invest in a lot when I'm introducing them to, you know, somebody else. This is all what they know. This is all what they will do. And that is exactly why I think they will do. So I, I love those kind of people who don't have a hedge, who don't have a plan B, because I know it is hard to crack one thing alone. Right? Yes. So, so for me, thesis has 
you know, has continued to remain that. I don't worry about pedigree. I don't worry about propensity or probability of somebody. How soon will they be able to raise their next round? I don't really care about that. I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur's friend uh, because I'm as much a struggling entrepreneur as they are. Just that mm-hmm. we are, you know, different places, you know, in the in the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also don't know where my how to do my 10x. I have no fucking idea, right? So, so I'm also discovering that, and I feel quite shitty twice a day. So, so for me, I think the role I play as an investor is that I'm the 2M. So you're not planning for exit. Yeah, you're you want to be part of someone's journey, and you want to believe I'm in friend, them. Yeah, I'm the friend who they can call when shit hits the roof. I'm also the friend who has taken an oath to not judge you in your lowest moments to also not tell you that I told you so also not tell you that how wrong you have done uh, I'm also not the consolation guy that all will be all right <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm I'm somebody who will you know who you can call you can tell that okay this is shit is hitting the roof and I'll ask you questions help you clear your mind I will try and ask you what's the action plan can we you know can we put that in action uh, you know I have had you know, experiences where, you know, I've resolved multiple co-founder conflicts in other people's startup. Uh, some of them were at the point of no return. So I also made one founder help one founder exit while helped other founder recruit another co-founder. Now, these were honestly, these were extremely enriching experiences uh, for me as well. Right. It, it's, it's, you know, while, while that founder may say, hey, Ashish was a strength for me. But the fact is that I was also experiencing it for the first time. And, and I was just acting as that third eye, you know, the dispassionate guy who can, who can think about, look at the entire thing without being emotional about it, right? Because, because as a founder, when you are dealing with shit in your startup, you're also emotional about it. Uh, you know, I can, I can look at it dispassionately. I can say, you know what, you might be feeling emotional, but this is right, this is wrong. Fuck it, move on. Right. So, uh, yeah, so for, for me, the dope yeah. is that. Yeah, no, that that's that's very fair. So aside from people and, you know, just watching their hard work and their grind, the hustle, are there any sectors and themes and uh, areas of interest, like journeys that you just want to be part of? Because you are in the restaurant business and you are working on different journeys, but there's so much happening in the world, right? Does that excite you that, hey, I want to be part of this thing, this big change? I think it's very intrinsic. So, so um, you know, it's very, very selfish and intrinsic. Uh, thankfully, temperament-wise, uh, I'm blessed to not get into FOMO a lot. Uh, uh, so I mean, this is this is not my wisdom. It, it is how probably I'm, I'm. That's how I figured out. That's how I'm wired. I don't worry about competition. For example, I never get overwhelmed by competition naturally. Uh, not because I am better or or something. Like that. So some sectors that I figured out is one thing. One theme is that I'm a B two B guy. Mm-hmm. I think B two B. That's that's a naturally occurring you know thing for me. And you can come from any sector. You can probably be doing a consumer product, uh, which you are doing D2C. But if you come to me and talk about a B2B possibility in that, I can jam with you for like three hours of that. Mm. So, so B2B across the board, not SaaS, but any B2B is very cool. I get really interested. Second is that education is one area, which I've figured that I have a thing for. And I've done multiple education startups now, uh, invested in multiple, you know, multiple and with all different flavors. Uh, so that's, that's one thing which I discovered that I, that I really love, but it was not something which was on top of my head. D2C in consumer business, direct to consumer is, is another love that I'm discovering 
for last one year. I think it happened in COVID. I know uh, you used to hate it back in the day when I was building consumer business and you were like, do yeah. not talk to me about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my point was that, you know, don't, and I, I, never used, <laughs> I used to say, don't talk to me. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. Because yeah. my advice will probably not help you. Yeah. yeah, but I think D2C is something that I discovered during COVID. Uh, I'm not a shopper at all. I shop for my clothes twice a year. That's it. And I can shop for like entire six months in under 30 minutes. So, you know, I, I will try a t-shirt and I'll, if it fits, if it's well, I'll say, give me all colors. And this is how I shop. Right? So it's, it's done. Uh, but D2C, what happened is that I started figuring out that this is a new kind of disruption where people are building these high quality products and disrupting large brands. And there are people who want to buy directly and people who want to buy without worrying about a label. In fact, a consumer today in D2C, especially in the high quality you know, product space, no matter what kind of product, people are ready to buy a story, right? And they are ready to endorse your brand or embrace your brand because your story was very, very cool. And because they believe in the story, because they believe in that, either they believe in organic or they believe in, you know, I don't know, vegan or they believe in uh, some, some high quality leather or whatever. So that intrigued me. And I, I started doing a lot of D2C startups as well. I am uh, keen on biotech and health tech. I haven't made any investment yet. I got an opportunity. I'm right now, as we are speaking, I'm uh, looking at a, uh, you know, company which is doing some cool stuff in Genome. Although it's, it's, it's funny because I'm getting a seat uh, or rather getting an opportunity to put a very small check while companies already worth 1.5 billion. Mm. So uh, I'm getting it through a vehicle. You know, sure. right, but right. the point is that, that, that it just, it's just blowing my mind what kind of stuff they are doing. And I believe that health tech, wearable tech, um, uh, diagnostics, etc., is going to be is, is going to be the future. This is great. You know, now say if you get an exit offer and which is too good to decline, and let's assume you take it because I know you're gonna say I'm not going to take it. Let's no, assume no. you take it. Where does your imagination take you in the next chapter of your life? Um, okay, so there's not going to be any next chapter. Uh, I think it's going to be a free flowing thing. We we figured it a couple of years back. We got a, we got a, so, so far we've got four exit offers. Um, and each time I think we were lucky enough that uh, those offers were good for the stage we were in. Last offer came in August of 19. And I think uh, each time we took an opportunity to reflect, you know, without worrying about whether we say yes or no, we basically started thinking about what if, why should we say yes? And why should we say no? And if we say no, what does it mean? Uh, what? We should, we should have a better answer for this, no? So if, if uh, whether that answer is 5x, 3x, 2x, 10x, whether that answer is IPO or something else, uh, we'll be able to run it for life, whatever, right? So it got, it. we, we, we took it and we, we used it as an opportunity to question all these things and, you know, introspect. And that was very, very good because we discovered two, three things. One, that both me and Sakshi are entrepreneurs at heart. We... We love businesses, we love building businesses, we love running businesses. That's our dope. That's our settled, you know, thing. Second, our tribe is entrepreneurs. And if I abstract it a little over the years, we have also tried to abstract it. I think we love high ownership people. So you can be a you can be an artist, you can be, you know, you, you can be anybody, right? But if you are high ownership in life, 
in general, in your conduct, there's a very high chance that we will judge. So, so we realized that who are the people who are, we are hanging out with? We are hanging out with all high ownership people and by some definition, they're wrong. Third, we love investing in other startups because that's the other part of the journey that we love. Living journey through their, their life and, and kind of also reflecting on ours because we have learned so much from the entrepreneurs that we invested in all the stupidities that we do, it, it's not even funny how many times it keeps happening where somebody is telling me something. My mind is saying that this guy is doing this wrong. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I also do this. And I, I zone out in, the, in that discussion. After that, the guy is going, ga, 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 ga. I am not even listening. I'm like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. I need to, I need to fix this, fix that, fix that. And I actually go and fix. So, so I think we figured these three things out. Back to your question. If we actually get an exit offer, which is too good to be true. And if we, you know, sell, I think uh, we will continue our investment journey. That will just amplify. If we are doing, let's say, X amount of check, it will become 5X. If we are doing Y number of startups, it will probably become 5Y. Uh, but nothing is going to change as a chapter. Who do we you wish to get acquired by? Uh, I think uh, current answer, as of today, that answer is that that we understand restaurant space globally and we've spent almost, you know, 10 years in this. Uh, so we know that there is a lot to do. There is so much to do in the space right now that we are not done yet. So if I think about today, I would like to plug this in a rocket ship, which is also aligned to take over, you know, the restaurant tech in the world. We'll be very, very happy to pass on the keys and... Of course, yes. And my last question to you, Ashish, is uh, if you're not building, if you're not investing, you're not an entrepreneur, what does Ashish like to do? If you have some time left. Uh, you're saying in general what I do? Or yeah, yeah. Do no, in general, in general, you're not building, you're not running a company, you're not investing. Where do you invest your time in? I invest time, with, uh, I invest time in learning, but I think that is the same thing, right? So I like meeting a lot of new people. I go at length, extra miles to have different experiences. Um, so I will keep finding uh, some different spots in the world. Uh, Always to- looking for an adrenal rush, huh? 100%. 100%. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ashish, for this conversation. 